0: Acts chapter 15. You heard me correctly. We are back in Acts. Alright, Acts is back. After a nearly seven-month detour into the book of Galatians, we pick back up right where we left off. And the controversy we find brewing here should sound very familiar to those of us that were in the book of Galatians. If you recall, Paul... And the early disciples, early missionaries have been preaching the gospel in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. This is Gentile territory, right? That Christianity started mostly among Jews, but it's now spreading out to uh, Gentiles, non-Jews. And God has blessed their efforts. That's got to be the shortest way to say it. They're out preaching the gospel and God has blessed their efforts. New non-Jewish converts being added to the church. New churches and new cities are being established. It is a thrilling time for the budding Christian community. After being sent out from the church in Antioch, Paul returns right back to that same church. And if it were me, I would be expecting, especially after sending some messengers, maybe some letters ahead, be expecting a victory parade waiting for me when I got back. Instead, instead of a parade, Paul finds himself landing right in the middle of a heated debate. And what is the debate over? The debate is over the very nature of the gospel that Paul and his companions have been risking their lives to share with the world. We should be celebrating, but here we are arguing Oh, this is what we come into. We're going to dive back into this. Catch right in the middle here. Basically three things in this chapter. A debate. And a letter. Pretty exciting stuff. Are you excited yet? (laughs) 35 verses of a debate and a letter. We're going to dive into it. 35 verses, actually 34 verses. It looks like 35, but you'll notice at the end, there's it skips right over verse 34, just so you don't, don't worry about that. It goes 33, 35. That's because verse 34, it was clear, was not in the original manuscripts. There's probably a note about that in your Bible. So 35, 34 verses. Here we go. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing. Buckle up. Here we go. But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent, And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The very words of God, please join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Lord, your word is a gift to us. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done to record these words down and deliver them to us that our faith might be strengthened. That our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ might be nurtured. And Lord, that, that we might know how to both believe in you and live for you. And that is precisely what we ask you to do now. Lord, help us to believe in you and live for you because of what you have for us in this passage. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 4, God ominously tells these words to Cain, who's the first murderer. He says, sin is crouching at the door sin is crouching at the door like a like a lion waiting quietly in the brush for the perfect moment to pounce on its prey sin is eagerly waiting for its chance to to pounce on you and grab you by the neck and rob you of life pretty vivid way to describe sin now for christians who've believed the gospel we don't have to fear god's warning to cain in the same way that cain did for we're secure in the knowledge that we've been saved from sin's consequences through the sacrifice of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can let our guards down. We, we instead, those of us who, who possess the gospel, who have the gospel, must be wary of anything that would attempt to corrupt or distort our understanding of this glorious gospel that we hold so dear. And in fact, this should sound very familiar to what we learned In the book of Galatians, wary of anything that would corrupt or distort our understanding of the gospel. Here in Acts chapter 15, the major threat is legalism, right? A concept we covered forward and backward in Galatians. Legalism is the belief that what Jesus did for me on the cross isn't enough to secure my salvation, There must be something that I have to do. I must add my own works or my own practices or perspectives to what he's done. Legalism says that when Jesus declared it is finished from the cross, he meant it's finished whenever my followers sprinkle in some of their own good works. And as we so fastidiously studied in Galatians, if you add a little legalism to the gospel, you can ruin the whole thing. And legalism is a near constant threat in our own hearts, first and foremost, in our church, and in the church more broadly. We could say, we should say, legalism is crouching at the door. It's crouching at the door. Do you sense that as a threat? Now listen, legalism, and you and I, can't ultimately ruin or alter the gospel right? The gospel is God's gospel, and the gospel will stand forever, but legalism can weaken our grip on the gospel. It can hurt the church's purity and witness and unity. Legalism can sideline Christians. It can distract us. It can trouble us, and that's what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas and the church leaders in Antioch and Jerusalem have become aware that confusion over the role of the Jewish law in the life of the believer is really legalism threatening the church at large. And at stake are both the truth of the gospel, that's at stake, and the unity of the church. They, they could lose the gospel itself by, by letting it be spoiled by Jewish practices, sure, but they could also lose the union of Jew and Gentile in one body. The church could fracture and the Gentile mission be lost. And the wise leaders here in Acts chapter 15 see the fault lines appearing. And so, by the Spirit's guidance and help, they get to work. What exactly are—I mean, we read a lot. I know it's a long passage. What exactly are the church leaders here in Acts 15 doing? I think the simplest way to describe it is using a phrase that's all over the New Testament— They're guarding the gospel. That's what they're doing. They're guarding the gospel. And for those of us who believe the gospel, we need to be reminded that we have the same charge as well. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. It is so precious, so powerful. Guard the gospel. How do they do it in Acts chapter 15? Let me walk you through this. Three points And I think, three ways that we can imitate their example as we seek to guard the gospel in our hearts and in our church as well. Point number one, how do you guard the gospel? Rejoice in its fruit. Rejoice in its fruit. There's a a thread woven throughout this passage that that I want to draw your attention to. We can actually see it at the end of chapter 14. If you look up Uh, Just 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 a little bit in your Bible, verse twenty-seven. And when they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice this impulse, it's, re, it's an impulse more than anything, to regularly point to the fruit that the gospel is producing. This is just all over this chapter, all over chapter 15. After their debate, the elders in Antioch decide, right, so that here they are down in Antioch, they're, they, these Brothers come down and they're debating about the need for circumcision, right? And they decide that this question needs to be taken to Jerusalem. And so they appoint Paul and Barnabas. Okay, you're going to be our spokesman to take this question up to Jerusalem and to the the apostles that are there to help us answer this. But what do Paul and Barnabas do on their way there? It's like they can't help themselves. Verse 3, look there. So, being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Remember remember Jesus' commission at the beginning of Acts. This this is the the program of Acts in a nutshell. That beginning in Jerusalem and spreading throughout Judea and Samaria and all the earth, the gospel would be preached, sinners would be saved, and local churches would be established. Paul has gone out to do that. Now he's working backward to Jerusalem on an errand and he's reporting in each place that Christ's promise is being fulfilled. He can't help it. As soon as they arrive in Jerusalem, what do they do? It's not a trick question. Verse, second half of verse 4. And they declared all that God had done with them. They immediately report on the fruit that the gospel is producing. And there's more spots. I'll get to them, but... In the first chapter of Colossians, another one of Paul's letters, listen to what he writes to another church that's tempted to distort the gospel. Here's what he writes. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and this, this phrase, as indeed in the whole world, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel itself is a force that produces spiritual fruit in the lives of those who hear it and receive it by faith. And we're protected from legalism when we recognize and rejoice in the good fruit that God is producing through it because it proves that it's not through our efforts, but through his gospel that he's changing the lives and fortunes of sinners. Well, Let's keep going. Acts 15 does. Reports of the fruit of the gospel keep coming. In his defense against legalism, Apostle Peter says, verse 8, if you can look there with me, verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter here, referring back to the events of Acts chapter 10, where Jewish believers were astonished as they saw the Holy Spirit fall on Gentile converts who believed the gospel, right? He's saying, this is the fruit of us preaching the gospel. They didn't get circumcised. They did not They did not keep the law, and yet God gave them the spirit. As soon as he's done with his defense, verse 11, uh, we read this in verse 12. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And here's Paul and Barnabas again. What do you think they're going to do? <laughs> they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles don't know what the signs were exactly but acts always connect signs and wonders to the preaching of the gospel when this message about Jesus death and resurrection is proclaimed god provides miraculous signs to validate it one commentator david peterson so clearly helpfully wrote this 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 is why the gospel produces fruit when it's preached he writes every gospel initiative can also be classified as a divine visitation. You listen to that again. Every gospel initiative can also be classified as a divine visitation. God encounters people personally through the preaching of the gospel. That's why the gospel produces fruit. Because God works through his word. He is working through his word. The fact that people are interested in the gospel, believe it and understand it and want to share it, is proof that God is prepared to work through his word. And these early disciples were just ready at a moment's notice, everywhere they went, to recount God's personal encounters through the preaching of the gospel over and over again. Because to see the gospel's fruit, to see the fruit of the gospel, is to feel its encouragement. To see the gospel's fruit is to feel its encouragement. That you and I are here today and not somewhere else this morning is proof that the gospel produces fruit. That you love Jesus even if you feel that your love for him is faint. If you believe in Jesus, even if you feel that your belief in him is faint, that is proof that the gospel produces fruit for. You have those affections and those beliefs because the gospel was preached to you and God met you through it. That's how he did it. Even if you aren't a Christian and you're here today, the fact that God has arranged for you to be here to hear the gospel, to hear it sung, to hear it read, to hear it preached this morning is proof that God is preparing the soil to produce fruit in your life. And regular rejoicing in the gospel, regular rejoicing in its fruit, is the first line of defense against legalism. I wish I had more time. I would take you through this in great detail in their arguments. They keep pointing back to the fruit that the gospel is producing. Reread this Acts chapter 15 after the service and you will see they keep referring to the fruit the gospel is producing because you can't argue with incontrovertible evidence. (laughs) So look for the fruit. Look for the fruit of the gospel. And that will fortify your heart against the sneaky lie that somehow we have some decisive role in what God is accomplishing through gospel ministry. Rejoice in its fruit. Point number two. Reason with its hearers. How do we guard the gospel? We reason with its hearers. The speeches in Jerusalem and the letter written to Antioch fall under the banner of what, I, what I'm just calling is reasoning. It's reasoning. It's listening. It's explaining. It's contending. It's defending. That's what's happening. That's the, the majority of what this chapter is describing. And they're they're reasoning with people who have a legalistic doctrine. It's stated very plainly in verses 1 and 5. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea. This summary is just so helpful. They were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Pretty unequivocal. Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough to save you. You also got to get circumcised. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I want you to notice a word that, at least my first few read-throughs of this, I skipped right over. Verse 5, the author, Luke, who wrote Acts, uses the term believers. Some believers were saying this. These aren't non Christians. (laughs) They're brothers, fellow believers. They're mistaken, oh, gravely mistaken. But they're in the family of Christ. They are saved. These guys are saved even though they don't know how they were saved, they are confused about how they were saved. But that common ground sets the tone for this whole interchange. Even though Peter's going to argue against them, he begins in verse 6 with the word brothers, a word of endearment and affection. This is good reasoning, okay? This is good debate. Brothers. James begins with the same word in verse 13. Apostle James, brother of Jesus, he says, verse 13, brothers, we're not witnessing a debate between enemies, but a crucial conversation among brothers. In fact, the question is, who gets to be a brother? Right? That's the question. The Jewish Christians want to say that some Jewish practices have to be kept. Paul, Peter, and James, and the others are arguing that they don't, and their argument is compelling. Look, it has all the pieces we saw in Galatians. Here's their argument in a nutshell. Why don't Gentile Christians have to keep Some of the Jewish laws. Here's what they said. First, is that the Spirit, which is the sign that you have been joined to God's people, God shares with you His Spirit. That's how you know you're in. Not circumcision is the sign, and circumcision is really a matter of the heart, and that's all over the New Testament. In fact, I did a quick look. The New Testament talks more about circumcision than the Old Testament because the New Testament is dealing with the misunderstandings about what circumcision was for. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, says it right in Jeremiah, even in the Old Testament. And here's Peter speaking in verse 8, read this earlier, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. They got what we got and they haven't been circumcised, so it can't be about circumcision, right? That's the first part of their argument. Second part of their argument, if you're going to say we have to keep part of the law, we have to keep the whole thing. Uh, Again, for those of you who are here with us in Galatians, we covered this in great detail. If you're going to say we have to keep part of the law, you're obligated to keep the whole thing. And Peter rules that out right in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? If this sounds like Galatians, it, it is. It's very much like Galatians. I think Paul and Peter were talking to each other and working this out. So you can't say we have to keep part of the law. If we have to keep part of it, we've got to keep the whole thing, and we can't, and we haven't. That's his, that's his argument. And then the third big piece. God has always promised to include Gentiles in the new covenant community that he would create through the death, resurrection, ascension, ongoing mediation of Jesus Christ. Gentiles were always supposed to be part of this new covenant community that the Messiah would create. And James makes this uh, apostle James verse fourteen and following. Here's what he writes. Here's what he says. Simeon, which is what Peter's name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name, and with this the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. And then he quotes Amos nine eleven through twelve about how God will rebuild the kingdom of David with a new people made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, these, these brothers make their case, but they make their case and they make it effectively because they were willing to listen and reason with their brothers wrestling with legalism. If you notice, in the narrative, they did not just shout them down. There's plenty of time where they're just listening. <laughs> plenty of time where they're just listening. They were gathered together, verse 6, to consider the matter. They were listening they were reasoning. They were pointing to God's activity in time and space. They were dealing with this issue from a bunch of different angles. And here the commentator David Peterson summarizes again for us their example beautifully. Here's what here's what Peterson writes. As Christians wrestled, as Christians wrestled with the question of the law's ongoing relevance and application, reflecting on Christ's own teaching and the events by which he inaugurated the new covenant. So that's what's going on, right? They're they're wrestling with with what exactly does this mean? Now that Jesus has come, what what do we keep? What do we shed? How do we think about this? As they're doing that, here's what he writes, there was need for sensitivity and generosity on all sides. God, Acts chapter 15 Especially from the leaders in Antioch, who wisely bring the question up. The leaders in Jerusalem, they show an incredible amount of sensitivity and generosity. Oh, and what, those two things in particular, what wonderful gifts we could give to each other. As we too work out the gospel and its implications in our own lives. No, every Christian needs time and counsel and care and prayer as we make sense of this this great salvation that God has given us through His Son. We don't get it all at once. We don't understand it all at once. There's there's a need for, for time, counsel, care, prayer. Oh, and I'm so thankful to be in a church that's ready and willing and regularly offers this to one another. You, Sovereign Grace Church, excel At sensitivity and generosity in your conversations and relationships with one another as we sort out our complicated lives in light of this wonderful reality. Uh, Oh, my hope, I think I could speak for Eric and Mike too, our hope and prayer is that in this church we will guard the gospel in a way that isn't defensive. See what I'm saying? We want to guard the gospel. We're serious about guarding the truth of the gospel and the purity of the gospel, but we don't want to do it in a way that's insensitive or dismissive or combative or defensive. Guarding the gospel, but not in a defensive way. There's just no need to be harsh, okay? (laughs) Most of the time. There's a time to deal with false teachers and things, for those of you that are going to catch me on that. But generally speaking, (laughs) There's really no need to be harsh and, oh, I, Lord, help me grow here. Even when one of us is struggling with legalism, which we should anticipate, we can listen and reason and explain and trust all the while that God is going to win hearts away from legalism to the true and glorious and pure gospel. That Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all for those who deserve nothing at all. Ah, oh, we want to win you to that. Convince you of that, listen to you as you wrestle with that. We want to reason with those who hear the gospel so that they might come to know it and believe it deeply. How do we guard the gospel? Point number three we respond in its power. Respond in the gospel's power. You may be wondering, what power, Dustin, are you referring to? Because there does not appear to be much power in this chapter. Again, this chapter is basically, and I could have used this as my outline, a debate, a committee meeting, and then a procedural letter. And that's basically Acts 15 in a nutshell. And some of the letter, let's be honest, I'm sure you're wondering, some of the letter is kind of weird. Okay, it's okay if you felt like that a little bit and you read it. What is so powerful about a debate, a committee meeting, and a letter? Great question. So glad you asked. I'll get to that. First, let's grasp why they came to the conclusion that they did. This is really important. Conclusion is in verses 28 and 29. If you look there for just a moment. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. There's the weird part. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. What a sign-off. I don't think I've ever finished a letter like that. I don't intend to either. The farewell is just so sudden. Why do they lay these constraints upon the Gentile Christians? It sounds like they're telling them to keep some of the law, doesn't it? Sounds like they're telling them, hey, you're not obligated to keep some of the law, but keep some of these laws. That sounds like what they're doing. That's not what they're doing. I I want you to notice, first of all, what they don't tell them to do. (laughs) They don't tell them to get circumcised which was the major thing that was being demanded by the Jewish brothers. Instead, this list of these four things is really a call to refrain from a few of the major practices associated with pagan temple worship in the 1st century that would easily be misconstrued and misunderstood by Jewish brothers and would offend their sensibilities. So basically, steer clear of idol worship and meat sacrifice to idols, don't eat blood, Don't eat meat from animals that were strangled, which was another way of saying don't eat the blood because the blood would still be in it if it wasn't slaughtered correctly. So this is interesting stuff, right? Uh, And then the last one, keep clear of sexual immorality, which all Christians of all time should do anyway, but cult prostitution was a very popular practice in the ancient world, and Christians, even when they were regenerated, didn't immediately understand that they needed to stop that. So... Steer clear of that. One, one commentator summarizes this as avoid the butcher and the brothel. And that is uh, a fair way to summarize what they are prohibiting them from doing here. But these have nothing to do with partially keeping the Jewish law. Nothing to do with it. And here's where the power in this chapter is. The power here is that these Gentile Christians would be glad to sacrifice their freedom for the good of their Jewish brothers. I mean, if you see the response later on, they rejoiced when they received the letter. They were happy to sacrifice freedoms that they had, minus sexual immorality, you're not free to do that. But the other three things they were free to do. And they were happy to sacrifice it for the good of their Jewish brothers. Galatians 5.13, we studied this verse not that long ago. For you were called to freedom, brothers. This is what they're doing. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. The power of the gospel working in your life. Gentile believers were free to eat meat, sacrifice to idols and blood and meat from animals that were strangled, but they were ready to forfeit those rights for the good of their Jewish brothers. This, my goodness, a huge victory for the church. A huge victory. Guided by the Spirit himself, right? The, the, the apostles sense that the Spirit is guiding them to do this, right? Guided by the Spirit himself. The church was on the cusp of splitting in two. The mission to the Gentiles nearly stopped in its tracks, but that crisis was averted. Not mostly by the wisdom of men, but by the power of God working through the wisdom of men. One author John Stott, and we quote him a lot, he wrote about the Jerusalem Council that the Jerusalem Council secured a double victory. <laughs> a double victory. A victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace. Oh, which is articulated so well in there. Peter, but we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Oh, they contended for the truth of the gospel. They confirmed the gospel of grace, but it was also a victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concessions. This is a great way to describe these. Sensitive concessions to conscientious Jewish scruples. (laughs) Sensitive concessions. And what are the effects of this great victory? Verse 30. So when they were sent off, which is the four men that they had appointed to carry the letter back to Antioch from Jerusalem, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having the congregation, uh, gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. When people, we Christians, respond in the power of the gospel, the effects are personal sacrifice and collective joy. Those are Uh, Two big things you will see in, in people, responding to life and circumstances in the power of the gospel, personal sacrifice, collective joy. That's the power of the gospel on display, even through committees and debates and procedural letters, the power of the gospel can be on display even in a committee meeting, and it is here. There's no situation that you or I face that we can't respond to in the power of the gospel if we possess the gospel through faith. For through the transforming power of the gospel, Christ offers us everything that's His. (laughs) Wisdom, peace, patience, self-control, love, and a host of other things that we so desperately need as we navigate the many and varied situations life offers us. Those are the weapons that we need to guard the gospel. We don't need a razor-sharp wit. We don't need an encyclopedic knowledge of theology. Though I'm grateful for those who do have it, I am not one of them. We need transformed hearts. We need fresh fillings of the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. We need the heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. The heart of the gospel to live in our hearts and animate our hearts. And when that true gospel is preached, this great news... Oh, it's great news for sinners that God himself came to us as one of us to rescue us from the wrath of God that we deserve on account of our sins. When that is preached and we believe it and cherish it through the power of the Spirit, God himself visits us, strengthens us, and equips us to guard the gospel in our hearts and in our church. That is why we preach the gospel and don't dilute it with any of our own works we want to preach this gospel purely in the power of the spirit every sunday and in our small groups and when you sit in a counseling meeting and when you meet with your neighbors for this gospel is more precious and more powerful than anything else that we possess And we guard it first and foremost by treasuring it personally. Christ didn't just die for sins, he died for my sins. And I will never taste the death that I deserve. And so it is for you if you believe. Christ did everything that was needed to save. Us from sin and death. How precious that news is. How powerful that news is when it grips our hearts. We treasure that truth. We treasure that truth. And then when we face whatever is coming at us, we respond gratefully and gracefully in its power. We don't know what God has in store for us as a church. We don't know what God has in store for us in our mission here, in Orange. We don't know how many people we will reach, how many new churches will be planted that we hope and pray and labor and give, that there would be many. We don't know what kind of suffering or prosperity and blessing you will face personally. We don't know. But we do know that whatever your going to face whatever we're going to face we will need the truth and the power of an undiluted gospel if our church is to remain faithful until Christ returns and I I know you want that as bad as we all do if we're to remain faithful until Christ returns we must guard this wonderful good news about what Jesus has done for sinners like us to bring us back to God may we do so may we do so by rejoicing in it Gosh, you already have been. Rejoicing in it, reasoning for it, and responding in the power of it, whatever God sends our way. Let me pray that we would. Lord, this gospel, there is just nothing like it. There is nobody so good as you. Who would do something so kind for people who have been as bad as us. And yet, Lord, we know. Oh, because your Spirit has given us eyes to see that this is true. That Jesus is the Lamb for sinners slain. And that there is nothing, nothing we could add to what he has done for us and in fact Lord we ask now that you would protect us from trying to add any of our own good works or thoughts or beliefs to this great gospel help us to know it truly and treasure it wonderfully in our hearts and then Lord out of that oh, help us to be effective as we guard the gospel first in our own hearts that we would be vigilant to not let anything in not legalism. Help us to guard it first and foremost in our own hearts and to contend for it, that it may have its intended effect on one another as well. May this be a church, Lord, that knows and rejoices in the gospel and that is sustained by the gospel until you return to finish what you began. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.